0: Welcome to With Friends Like These. I am Anna Marie Cox. Before we start the show, please, if you haven't already, register to vote. And if you have registered to vote, then go vote if you can. And if you voted, maybe try to get other folks to vote. You can go to votesaveamerica.com for all the tools you will need for those various tasks. And speaking of voting, we have one of our few elected officials on the show this week, Julian Castro, the former mayor of San Antonio and Democratic presidential primary candidate. I did not get a chance to vote for him, but I very much appreciated and admired the dignity and humanity he brought to the debate stage. And I credit him for basically upvoting the issues that should matter to more people, trans rights, disability issues just talking like a, like a real person sometimes. He's bringing that warmth and passion to a new podcast from our friendly rival network, Lemonada Media. It is called Our America, and it's about the wide variety of experiences that we still call American. From mobile home residents who might get evicted to the newly food insecure. We talked about those things, and a lot of other things in this week's show. Coming right up, Julian Castro. Julian Castro, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's, it's really good to talk to you. I, I loved seeing you on the debate stage and missed you when you were gone. So it's nice to see you on my, on my Zoom call. I never would have expected that part. So thank you for joining us. So I want to talk about growing up in Texas a little bit. Um, Obviously formative uh, to you. Sometimes I I think growing up in Texas is a little more formative than other areas. It's such a strong identity. Um, And you have a particular background. So for me, sometimes what I tell people is growing up in Texas, I feel like I was exposed to more ideological diversity than a lot of progressives. You know, I grew up with a lot of different kinds of people thinking different kinds of things. Do you think that's true for yourself? Do you feel like you experience like more relationships, friendships, contact with people who thought differently than you, than maybe a lot of people who grow up liberal or progressive?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's probably true, um, you know, especially as I got older and really after I came back to Texas, because, you know, I grew up on the west side of San Antonio And, you know, with a mother that was this Chicana activist, Mexican-American civil rights activist. Uh, So I I grew up basically in a place that was 90-something percent Mexican-American and in the public schools there in these two school districts that were uh, lower-income school districts. So it really wasn't until I got back from law school and was at law, you know, a a law firm and obviously in the legal community and then in politics in Texas, where I saw that ideological diversity first was really in college and then in law school. Yeah, like a lot of people do. But here in Texas, it's true that as you get out and about, I mean, you can go from a place like a, a basically a barrio, like the west side of San Antonio, and drive 15 minutes and you're basically in Trump country. You know, I mean, things change pretty quickly when you get from the the urban core into the into the suburban or exurban areas uh, of of Texas. First of all, I think you'd agree. I mean, we when we were growing up, right, um, it felt a little less polarized, or maybe a lot less polarized than it does today, um, and. One of the things I loved about local government, for instance, when I was a city councilman in San Antonio was that you knew your neighbors and the, the the politics were not just about people thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C. They were conversations that I had when I knocked on people's doors or when we went to neighborhood meetings or people that would come to my office. and And that was also the experience that I had, you know, when I... Partly when I grew up here, but then when I came back, um, is even when there are disagreements, you felt like there was this common experience, and uh, you knew people and you knew they're not bad people, and you know they might disagree with you. And I try to hold on to that as well, uh, because I think that one of the worst parts of our democracy over the last few years has been its tendency toward more and more polarization and more, Bitterness.
0: Do you think that's a a local versus national perspective that it's still possible on the local level to have these relationships where you don't doubt the intentions of the other person? I mean, we I think it's 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 I think we can almost say point blank. It's not I don't know. I mean, it's possible to have that at a national conversation, I guess, but we're not having it. Um.
1: I, I yeah, I definitely do. I mean i I believe because there's this sort of um, common experience, you know even though, hey, look, we got to be honest you, know, a lot of cities are still economically segregated, some of them so racially segregated. people do have their own lived experience in a community, but it's still a, there's much more of a common experience that people have um, than when you're talking about you know, somebody who lives thousands of miles away or this idea of Washington, D.C. What I found also in local government and one of the reasons that people could still roll up their sleeves and work together, even if they were Republican or Democrat, was number one, we were we were running in a nonpartisan system. So you didn't have to declare what party you were with. And I liked that because when I went to knock on people's doors, it meant that, you know, I I didn't have a D attached to my name right away. And I could have conversations with a person, yeah, about trash collection, about potholes, about the fire department, about economic development and job creation that didn't immediately start off with, oh, well, but you're a Democrat, you know, or for somebody else, oh, but you're a Republican, so you're on the other side. And a lot of local governments are structured that way. Not all of them, particularly, you know, I think in the Northeast and a couple of other parts of the country, they are. You do have to run an apartment system, but where they're nonpartisan, I really feel like that that lends itself to people working together more. Uh, another thing is that you know, oftentimes these you know these bodies are not huge bodies. In Congress, you have four hundred thirty five people, and in the United States Senate. Uh, you have 100 people, you know, we had 11 people for this city of 1.5 million folks. And that means you get to know your colleagues and work with them. It also means that that people know their representative, their city council member, in a way that they just don't, you just don't get to know their congressional representative or certainly their senator. And what's also fascinating, you know, for me is I have a twin brother, Joaquin, and we both we both went into politics. He went the state route and got elected state representative and then got elected to Congress. And so I see it from that end, you know, as, as the brother of a congressman, how it is different and how it is partisanized. And uh, it's just a totally different vibe.
0: So w- the one thing Pete Buttigieg did convince me of um and talking to him and reading his book was actually the value of being a mayor and how being a mayor maybe maybe the best experience you could have running for president or to actually not to not run i think it might be a poor training for running just looking at the results <laughs> <laughs> but the actual governance but the actual well he he did pretty well right but the other mayors eh. You know yes
1: some of us did not
0: <laughs> but the governance part I I think I'm still I still buy that argument um do you think that maybe actually like there is an important distinction there between the running and the governance as far as like a mayoral background goes like you did run as a nonpartisan and the presidential race is just incredibly partisan
1: uh you know I hadn't thought of it that way I, I think you know the the results of the race in 2020, it was a very unusual race. You had at one time, 25 people running. I think it, like any presidential election, it was about a moment in time. And the biggest lesson that I took was that the person that wins the nomination and then and then wins the presidency, of course, is the person who most meets the moment. And, you know, in profile, in experience, in, you know, what especially what people want at that time. And that's how I explain, you know, what happened in the 2020 primary uh, is, I think, under different circumstances in a different election year, not just me, but several of the other folks may have done better. Uh, But, you know, I felt like the, the tide was going in a certain direction this year that that was separate and apart from our individual experiences.
0: I'm not sure if, I mean, obviously the person who got the nomination is the person who got the nomination. And so it's almost a tautology to say that that's the person of the moment, because I don't know if I quite buy that, like this moment we're living in. I mean, I'm speaking to you from, from Minneapolis, which is one of the birthplaces of this moment. Right. And here in Minneapolis, we've all been profoundly affected by the movement for social justice.
1: Well, I mean, like, but let's let's dig into that a second. You're talking, I think, you're talking about a moment that was created in late May, right? After late May, and so the primary. In fact, I've said several times in the last couple of months that I actually believe the vision that I put out uh, in the 2020 campaign resonates now more than it did in 2019, because, I mean, we were right there on police reform, on racial justice, on, uh, you know, a number of other things that actually seem more top of mind to folks in the fall of 2020 than they did in the fall of 2019. But we were running in the fall and then the spring of 2019, I mean, of 2020, and, and So I don't know. You know, it's a very good question that if that that moment that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd had happened a year before, would that have made any difference to the politics? Who knows? But I do think that still, of course, the nominees of each party have to, you know, they have to grapple with this moment and they have to ensure that they're speaking to it. And and I think to his credit that um, Vice President Biden I mean, I believe that he and and uh, Senator Harris have spoken to that. I think that's one of the reasons that that in Minnesota, for instance, it was super close. Most people don't think about that outside of Minnesota. Two points. But, yeah, I mean, and that was a huge surprise to a lot of people because, I mean, Minnesota has this bedrock tradition of electing uh, Democrats. I think the party over there is DFL, if I have that right. Um, but... But after the 2016 election, a lot of folks pointed out that, you know, uh, demographically and otherwise, the state actually had some tendencies that looked like other states that supported Trump. But this year, at least from what I can tell, it's not even close.
0: I mean, we'll see what turnout looks like, because that's actually also what happened in 2016, like all over, is that a bunch of people in red Minnesota, what they call greater Minnesota, you know, turned out that didn't turn out in years before. but definitely the past four years have activated those blue and purple areas of the state in a way that no one has seen before. You know, I think, I buy your argument, obviously, the presidential um, primaries took place when they took place. (laughs) Again, tautology. Um, To me, what that might indicate is the presidency or the presidential nomination is a kind of lagging indicator of where the country is. And I think that might be true on the Republican side in 2016. I think the country was moving towards Trump before Trump came about, right? And, But I want to drill down a little bit on the primary some some more because, you know, the theme of, of this uh, season of the show is good intentions. And, and one example of good intentions that I, I thought about, especially relating to you, was the concept of strategic voting, which is a, a well-intentioned thing to do, right? Like— you plan on voting for the person that's going to win because winning is really important. It does mean perhaps that some candidates that might speak to someone's heart, like you, don't necessarily get the votes because you're somehow considered less electable. What do you, what do you think of that problem, especially in the Democratic Party? I, I feel like the Republican Party doesn't quite have the same dysfunction,
1: Yeah. I mean, we felt, we felt some of that and, you know, it was hard to untangle that. I definitely felt some of that. It was also part of an other mix of concerns. I think people had obviously, you know, there were things I could have done better in the campaign um, as well, but I we definitely saw that people, it was like a bank shot, you know, people and people always do this, but I think that was, it was even more pronounced this year because everybody was so shell-shocked by what happened in 2016, they, Democrats did not expect to lose that presidential election. It felt like Trump had pulled the rabbit out of the hat and you know, gotten the election somehow. Um, and, and they just were determined like, hey, that's not going to happen again. And this guy is so bad, right? Mm-hmm. We just can't take any chances. And so they were. people seemed to be thinking, okay, well, I like this person. But what are these folks over here, you know, in especially in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that we only lost by 77,000 votes collected? What are they going to think about this guy or this woman? And and so that was even more prominent in people's heads. But the other thing was, look, th- when there are 25 people running, I mean, there were a lot of talented people. And so in another election, you know, cycle, go back to to 08, there may have been like eight or nine people just the number of people you're competing against for the share of the vote is a lot, is like a third (laughs) versus what it was this year. And in in the game of presidential primaries, that matters because if you can start showing life, if you can get uh, 4%, 5%, you know, then you get more media attention and it picks up momentum. But if you're so fractured the whole time, And then you're competing against people with greater name ID, greater resources. And then you have this dynamic that you're pointing out, which was real, of uh, electability meant a certain thing in this election. That creates a a real, um, you know, uh, headwind. And not just for me, I think for a number of people.
0: I agree. And I want to be clear. I'm not trying to get you to, like, say nasty stuff or have, like, you know, like, somehow be grouchy about the primary that you went through. But me as a progressive voter, like we wound up with two fucking straight white guys. Like, (laughs) even when it got winnowed down, my options to vote for someone who who didn't look like everyone except for obviously big caveat who went before were like just super limited, you know, and I guess for me. Like that idea of strategic voting, like maybe what I'm asking you, I guess if you had the answer to how to break out of that, you would now be our nominee, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah if I had the answer. I had the money to break out of it, sure. um, <laughs> but,
0: I'm, but I still sort of, it's, but it's I something that, that, you
1: know, I saw it, that with Senator Warren, as you know, I supported Senator Warren after I uh, exited from the race and yeah, I mean, that was a real, very real dynamic this year.
0: Jumping into the conversation for an ad break. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company that connects you with a dermatologist online who can prescribe your products to meet your skincare goals. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin concerns and medical history, then snap a few makeup free selfies, and your dermatologist will get back to you within 24 hours with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. Their prescription creams come in airless pumps to ensure those potent ingredients stay effective. Plus, your first order comes with cute stickers to decorate your bottle. But I will be honest, I am an apostrophe customer, and I just appreciate that the bottles look like they came from a, you know, store, like a a specialty store, and not like they don't – they're not prescription-like squishy things, you know, like I – like to have things look nice, and when I open my cabinet, the apostrophe bottle fits right in with all the other expensive stuff. I first started going to apostrophe because I developed—is this? I don't know if this is interesting. Anyway, I—I I developed rosacea, so I need help with that. And then I developed um, these things on my face. What are they called? Oh, lines, wrinkles, those. And Apostrophe has helped me with both of them. And it is nice to not have to go in and talk about these things. The most embarrassing part is to take those makeup-free selfies. And, you know, there's something to be said for just being able to take a makeup-free selfie. You know, rocking the makeup-free selfie. Get your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com for only $5 when you use our code FRIENDS. This code is only available to listeners of this podcast. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com and click Begin Visit. Then use the code FRIENDS at sign up and you'll get your dermatology visit for just $5. That's apostrophe.com. Blinkist is a proud sponsor of With Friends Like These. And let me tell you about Blinkist it is one of the ultimate life hacks. Blinkist is very unique, it works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. What they do is take the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses those key takeaways into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists as well as classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never got around to. I like Blinkist because I can sound smart without actually having read the book, or I can be smart and read the book because I've already been able to kind of try it out and see if I would like it. Like I said, they have popular books and they have politics books. They have bestsellers. They have things from the past. Um, One book that I have um, consumed via Blinkist, in part just because I think it's funny, is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. It's a book about saving time. And so I consumed it via Blinkist. I probably saved a lot of time. More seriously, I've used Blinkist to comb through some of the dozens of books about the Trump presidency, like Impeachment and American History, Crime and in Progress Inside the Steele Dossier, The Accidental President, Russian Roulette, and, of course, Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, one of the first. With Blinkist, you can—I un- can't do this one. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash with friends, try it for free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled Blinkist blinkist.com slash with friends to get a free seven-day trial and 25% off your subscription, but only when you sign up at blinkist.com slash with friends. There are a lot of good ways to start off your day. I would argue any way you start off your day is good because what's the alternative? Not starting your day, Uh, but you might want to start with making your bed. When you make the bed in the morning, it starts a chain of daily successes. Well, for me, it's more like I did at least one thing today. I made my bed. But you know what feels better than making your bed every morning? Loving the sheets that are on it. Go with Brooklinen, home of the Internet's favorite sheets. I do make my bed every morning, although lately I've been spending a lot of time on top of it. I got injured. No, I'm not going to bore you. But basically there are times I just can't do much besides lay down. And it's really great to have nice sheets when all you can do is lay down. It's especially nice to have linen sheets like Brook Linen Cells because they're pre-wrinkled and like when I get up after my lie down and everything's all wrinkly, it's just because everything's all wrinkly, because they're linen sheets. So I highly recommend the linen sheets, although Brooklinen in general is great. You can choose from a variety of sheets, colors, and patterns. There's classic percal and luxe sateen and also heathered cashmere, if that's your thing. Uh, Cold weather is coming up. Brooklinen sheets are the perfect place to start making your mornings and afternoons great. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their bedding comes with a lifetime warranty. Get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code WFLT only at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Back to Julian. And so when I look at what happened in 2020, it is, like I said, it's sort of dispiriting. And I feel like this problem of strategic voting is one that just plagued the Democratic Party for a long time. Yeah. So what is it like? Is there a way to break out of that?
1: I do think that that will change. For instance, in my just as a hypothetical. If 2016 had not happened. And Jeb Bush had become. The nominee. And we were having a conversation about, oh, wow, Hispanics are going in mass to the Republican Party or or they're inching up toward 50 percent at least. I often I felt both in that cycle um, and then in this cycle that the conversation around my candidacy would have been a little bit different because the emphasis there, the need for the party to play to certain, you know, segment of voters. And obviously, I don't like being defined by just one thing and I, I'm not. And Senator Warren is not defined by just being one thing. But I say that to say that it will change. It will change because the country is changing, because I think the attitudes uh, are much different than they were, let's say, when Shirley Chisholm ran in 72, or even Jesse Jackson. Hopefully, even from when Barack Obama won in 08, right? where hopefully we're getting better. No thanks to Trump, who's trying to take us backward, but hopefully we're getting better. And I also think as we get better and we get more diverse, that that emphasis of how people are strategically voting will begin to change as well. That's my hope, at least. I don't think it's gonna, it, you know, it, it's frustratingly slow. And and so many people of talent. Senator Warren was a great example of that. I mean, I told her all along the way, even when I was on in the race, I thought that she was uh, she was articulating a vision for the future country and combining that with powerful. Uh, storytelling from her own experience and the experience of others, like, like nobody on the campaign trail. Right. Um, But, but there's everything else, you know, the good news is that I think that, that we are uh, progressing as a party and and as a country, even if it's um, too slow, too slow.
0: You know, I have a little piece of wood in front of me, so I'm going to knock on it right now. Um, about what the race looks like. So I'm not taking anything for granted. I want to be very clear. I don't think anyone should take anything for granted. But let's just say things work out in such a way that we have a, a President Biden and a Vice President Harris. Their platform is more progressive than any platform in history. Neither of them personally are have a progressive background, I would say. And, and I'm not saying that like in a, that they're, they're, they're national politicians. That's what happens, you know? How do progressives hold them accountable?
1: You know, a few years ago, Barack Obama, I think he was talking to a group of young people um, said that you need to push politicians. You need to make politicians, you know, do the right thing. And that's how I think of the period after November 3rd, is, you know, in, in a productive and loving way, but in a truthful way, we need to make sure that the next Congress and the next administration live up to the promise that we know is there. If there's one thing that you can say about Trump, you know, you know he's done it by hook and by crook, sometimes illegally, is that that administration has gone out of its way. To, to try and do uh, a number of conservative, well, a number of sometimes conservative, sometimes just odd things, um, so that they can say, look, we did it. In, in politics, it makes sense to produce results. And we're going to need for the next administration to produce results for people on health care, you know, on tax policy that shifts away from benefiting mostly the wealthy, on immigration, which is a, you know, a huge issue from last time, unfinished business. And the best way to do that is for people to keep using their voice. Don't see November 3rd as an ending, you know, see it really as the beginning of a new phase of advocacy uh, and of, of ensuring that those promises that were made are actually kept and and that it goes in a progressive direction because I think that it's true when people can't really tell the difference between the Republican and the Democrat, the Republican's gonna win probably because fundamentally Republicans are asking you to care about yourself and maybe your family. as progressives, we're asking you, of course, to care about yourself and your family, but fundamentally, we're also asking you to care about so many other people people that you may not have, you think you may not have much in common with, people that you don't live next to, folks that are different color skin, a different background, people you may have stereotypes about. Ours is a much bigger ask, fundamentally. And so, you know, that means that it's, it's, it's that much more challenging sometimes to articulate a vision that is appealing to a, as broad a, a population as we need. It also means that the differences need to be clear of what benefit you're getting out of that, you know, and, and come January of 2021, that's going to be a time where um, I think they should throw out the conventional wisdom of you do one big thing for instance like it's you do one big thing at the beginning in 20 2009 2010 it was you know it was the recovery and then right after that it was healthcare you know i i believe that there should be a full-throated agenda that of course you know embraces progressive ideals that is done on healthcare on tax policy on recovery on immigration you know on educational opportunity and um And get that done so that people can see results.
0: Second and last ad break. This holiday season, more people will be mailing stuff than ever before. That means the post office is going to be busy and you don't have time for that. Stamps.com brings the post office and now UPS shipping right to your computer. Mail and ship anything from the convenience and safety of your home or office. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get 5 cents off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With my promo code, FRIENDS, You get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's Stamps.com, enter FRIENDS. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. When is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Well, big box store experts will tell you anytime, or they'll dodge the question. But the best time to plant is actually fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com for the world's largest online nursery. No waiting in lines. No getting your car messy. No digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade privacy, fruit trees, or just added color to your yard, or like me, something to make your condo feel a little less sterile, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth come spring. My husband is the green thumb in the family, or kind of a camo thumb, because he has Like, really good luck with some plants and not such good luck with others, or that's what we thought. We couldn't figure out, like, why some thrived and others didn't until, of course, we went to fastgrowingtrees.com and were able to get trees that kind of work with our lifestyle, which is to say that they are safe for pets and don't need to be watered all that often. Fall is planting season. Don't let anyone tell you different. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com, plus... There's the 30-day Alive and Thrive Guarantee. That means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now, through November 15th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends, and you will get 10% off. That's 10% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends. Enjoy the rest of the show. So I want to continue the conversation in a slightly more personal vein, although all of that is personal politics is personal um you grew up as you said earlier with a chicana activist mom and you and your brother have have entered public service in a really profound way why is it that some people become activists and and have a vision for helping others like your mom in particular i'm thinking about her how do you think she came to this place where it became her passion became her lifelong passion to do these things? Because it wasn't necessarily something that was going to happen.
1: You know, it's, it's a fascinating question. I think for, at least from what I've observed, uh, whatever the issue is that somebody is, a- is active on, they're an activist for, it seems to be sparked by this sense of injustice and how things could be better that something is wrong and it should be made right. For my mom, it was watching her mother, because my mom was an only child, watching her mom work her whole life as a maid, a cook, and a babysitter, and sometimes um, be taken advantage of or taken for granted by the people that she worked for. And feeling like, and then looking around and seeing that that was the norm in that community. I mean, we're talking about 1950s, 1960s, um, Texas for, for Hispanics, you know, for Mexican-Americans. And so, uh, you know, it was a lot to deal with back then. And for her, there was this spark, this sense of, hey, you know, aren't, aren't we people like everybody else? Why, why are things like this for us? Um, it should be better than this, and then she saw that through the through the experience of her own mother, you know, working like she did. I think that's what sparked it for her. I think for a lot of other people, it's some other reality where they say, "Hey, this is wrong," and like it needs to change, and they kind of you know, put their foot down and dedicate themselves to trying to change it
0: is that true for you that that injustice was your motivation to enter into public service
1: yeah i think i think it's fair to say that uh you know i'm my mom's son (laughs) yeah she raised my brother and me mostly as a single parent and when we were young she used to drag us to rallies and speeches and like i remember sitting in the Main library downtown for three hours as the adults had a meeting about who knows what, you know, they're organizing meetings. Uh so you know, I grew up with a mom that was role modeling, being involved in the community in our democratic process, and for a specific reason, you know, in the pursuit of greater equality in the country. And that did rub off on me. Um and so my going into public service was part of that. It was also broader than that. You know, I had a chip on my shoulder about my city in general because I really felt when I went away to the Bay Area in California, like that community had better education levels and better income levels and just seemed more ready for the future. And I wanted to do something about that here, you know, in San Antonio. And so my, my initial interest really broadened as well. But, but originally yeah I mean I, I took in a lot from my mom and um, I'm glad that I grew up that way because I feel like it gave me a foundation of spotting right from wrong
0: and so would you say that this era this these past four years or, or two years however you want to measure um, the challenge has been the the biggest threat to to your ability to kind of stay in a mode of fighting for social justice? Has that ever been under threat? Have you ever felt like, I just don't know if I can do this anymore?
1: I mean, have I ever wondered that? Yeah, I mean, I wondered it. Um, But I'm also, you know, I'm in this weird spot now because for the first time in a long time, I'm not aiming for any office. I've been out of office before, you know, and, and surprisingly, When I get out of office, whether it was after being a city council member, when I lost my first race for mayor, or after getting out of HUD a couple of years ago, I don't miss it particularly that much. Like, I'm not pining at home like, oh, I wish I were back in that office. Like, I mean, you know, I've always felt like I I can dig into whatever I'm doing and enjoy myself. But I've also always had in the back of my head, like, okay, well, probably I'm going to do something in the future. For the first time in a long time, I'm not aiming at any office specifically right now. And so I, I, I am willing, I think, or comfortable with the idea of taking a longer break. Uh, I may not, you know, uh, but, but right now I don't feel compelled the way that I have in the past to get back into it. And that may be in part because I just ran like an exhausting race where I was gone 75% of the time from my family. But the other part of it is that, yeah, the times that I just, I talked about the, just, it just felt off, you know? And, um, but whatever I do, I do think that I'm gonna, I will still try and use my voice to affect positive change. So I I wouldn't walk away from that. You know, I don't think I'll ever walk away from trying to make things better in some way. It's just, you know, how to do that, and will that be in elective office or not?
0: Well, you are out of office, but I would, I would get in trouble. What is it you're doing now? Tell us more about it.
1: Yes, the thing I'm excited about right now is uh, just. A couple of weeks ago, I kicked off a podcast called Our America. And this podcast is all about shining a spotlight on the different experiences and struggles of Americans out there. Uh, Many people that I met along the way over these last six years, either when I was housing secretary or on the campaign trail. It's amazing how much the difference, how much the experience that people have shifts from one person, one community to the next.
0: Is that a way of keeping your fighting spirit alive also?
1: I think so. Yeah, it's, it's another way of channeling, um, uh, channeling a sense of right and wrong and what we should be doing in our country, um, but doing it through telling a story and lifting up others. And I'm excited to do that. Also, you know, when I went away to college, originally I thought I was going to go into journalism, and and this is probably the closest that I'm going to get uh, to to journalism. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. You know, I, I like uh, the opportunity to use a different medium um, and a different approach other than electoral politics to tell these stories.
0: You know, it's funny because it's a it's a cliche of. Stump speeches to be like, and I met John Doe, who told me about his lack of health care and my policy will solve the problem of John Doe. Right. But are you telling me that that kind of stuff isn't enough to understand (laughs) the problems that everyday Americans are going through? I
1: know. Yeah. I mean. I really like the opportunity to delve into it, you know, to really hear their story. Yeah. You know, you hear these politicians. Oh, look, we got whoever in the audience and you know, this person is facing this. But, you know, th- on this latest episode, for instance, I went we went back to a place called Waukee, Iowa. There's a mobile home community there and a 93 year old woman named Arletta Swain. She and her neighbors a couple of years back, uh, their mobile home community was bought out by a private equity group. And all of a sudden they got a letter telling them that their rent was going to get raised by 69%. And the, the episode of Our America is all about how they fought back. They went to the Iowa legislature. They organized, tried to go to the Iowa legislature to get legislation. They weren't quite successful there, but through their efforts, through their pushback, they were able to at least stave off a lot of those rent inc- that rent increase, and you know preserve a sense of community and really strengthen their bonds. And you know the podcast tells the story of that, and hopefully inspires other people because this is happening around the country with these private equity groups buying up uh, mobile home communities, some of the most vulnerable people in the in the country. And, uh, you yep. know, I hope others hear it and, and they're inspired by that.
0: Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me.
0: That is it for the show. We are a production of Crooked Media, produced by Allison Herrera, with assistance from Lily Alexandrov. This show was engineered by Karen Qualley. Izzy Margulies schedules and researches the show. Leah McMahon posts on my behalf on social media. Whitney Pasturek heard the cats and is probably, right now, as I speak, out-registering voters in Nashville, Tennessee, which reminds me, register to vote, vote, use the tools at votesafeamerica.com. And after all that, please take care of yourselves.